0: Section 5, A Ride Across the Peloponnese. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Rob Marland at the top of the theatre in Argos. A Ride Across the Peloponnese by George Macmillan. Section 5, Argos and Mycenae. A long downhill drive, along a good road, through wild, barren country, with rugged mountains frowning upon us till it was too dark to see them, brought us to Argos at about half-past twelve. Our host, the doctor and ex-mayor of the town, took us in the morning to see all the sights of the place. Modern Argos is a very picturesque little town, built mostly round a large square, which boasts a cathedral and public offices of some pretensions, not to mention a carriage stand. The shops are sheltered, as in Andritzena, with wooden penthouses. In the town itself, and in the suburbs, are a good many gay villas, set in gardens full of oranges and lemons and mulberries, from which delicious whiffs of fragrance greet the passerby. Hanging above the town, at the height of some 500 feet, rises the rock of the citadel, the old Larissa, crowned now with the ruins of a Turkish fortress. Fragments of the old Greek walls are said to be visible about the foundation of the building. Other ruins, including a very fine piece of polygonal masonry, which probably formed part of the wall of the lower city, are to be seen at the foot of the ridge. Near this spot, and cut out of the living rock, is the theatre, one of the finest in all Greece. Though much overgrown with grass and flowers, the rows of seats are still quite distinct. From the top, one gets a glorious view of the rich argolic plain, bounded on the east by the blue waters of the gulf, at whose head stands Nauplia, its grand rocky citadel looking down with paternal dignity upon the busy port beneath. Inland, on every side, the plain is set about with mountains. On the west, the ridge of Parthenium, between which and Artemisium our road had lain on the previous night. To the south, the ridge on which we were standing sweeping away to our right to join the mountain masses of Laconia. On the north, range rose above range till the farthest was hid in the clouds. At the foot of the foremost range of northern mountains, a low height was pointed out to us as Mycenae, and a small knoll nearer to the sea as Tiryns. Considering the very prominent part played by Argos in Greek history, from the days when King Diomede joined his neighbour Agamemnon in his expedition against Troy up to the latest period of Greek freedom, it is disappointing to find so few remains of pristine greatness. Save the theatre, which stands proof against the ravages of time and the scanty ruins of the walls to which we have referred, nothing remains to tell that Argos was once a great city. Time seems, in some sort, to have punished Argos for her cruel treatment of her rival Mycenae. Mycenae was destroyed in 468 BC, and so far as we know, has never been inhabited since. Argos, on the other hand, has lasted till this day, but it has outlived its greatness. The town is so modern, so busy and full of life, that even what relics of the past remain are almost forgotten in the stir of the present. At Mycenae, no disturbing element comes in to break the contemplation of its mighty past. The massive walls, the curiously wrought vaults, the newly found treasure, are silent witnesses to days of power, of skill, and of wealth, which must have been, to whatever period we may assign them. Of the aftertime nothing reminds us. The desolation of centuries has preserved to us dim but unbroken the image of Mycenae, ...as it was 2,000 years ago. Before starting for Mycenae, we had a most interesting and amusing interview... ...with the uncle and mother of our host, the former of whom had fought in the War of Independence. He was a fine, grizzled old man, clad in Greek dress, and somewhat bowed with age. He was quite delighted to be reminded of the good old times, and at once began to fight his battles over again for our benefit illustrating his narrative most graphically with the stick which supported his tottering footsteps. The torrent of eloquence and invective which poured forth as he hobbled up and down the room in his excitement nearly convulsed us with laughter. Though we could not understand him thoroughly, we managed to catch a word here and there and Nicholas imparted to us the gist of his meaning. The chief exploit he had taken part in was an attack on some Turkish gunboats at Nauplia, which had been attended with complete success. Turning to present politics, we asked him if he would be willing to fight again, should occasion require it. I need hardly say that he expressed perfect readiness, and did not seem to mind whether it were against Turks or Russians. His sister, one of the most wonderful and energetic old women I ever saw, seemed equally desirous to join in the struggle, and to bury her nails in the face of any foe that might come. Bidding farewell at last to this heroic couple, we set off to Mycenae. A drive of about an hour, through fields of waving corn, alternated with great stretches of newly ploughed land, brought us to the foot of the ridge on which the city of Agamemnon was built. Leaving the carriage in the village below, we took the path upward. Having gained the first height, we came at once, on the left, upon the famous treasury, or tomb, of Atreus. Its wonderful hive-like structure is too well known to need more than a passing mention here. The immense size of the stones with which it is cased inside, and the extreme nicety of their cutting and fitting, testify to an age whose mechanical appliances must have been of great efficiency. The rude ornamentation over the doorway shows, however, that art was in its infancy when the mason's craft had reached a high point of excellence. Climbing a little higher, we came upon a second tomb of similar, though less perfect, structure. It has fallen in from about halfway up, and the interior is blocked with a great pile of masonry, which was cleared aside to some extent by Dr. Schliemann. Nothing of any importance, however, was found here. A steep footpath led us up from this point to the famous Gateway of the Lions. The wall on the left-hand side of the gateway, both inside and outside, is a very fine rectangular masonry. The gateway itself is on a larger scale than I had anticipated. The entrance must be some 12 feet high, and the lions carved on the huge stone which forms the lintel are about 5 feet in height. Passing through the gateway, we came on the right hand upon the scene of Dr. Schliemann's labours. The plot of ground excavated is about 40 yards long by 20 wide, surrounded on the three sides which overlook the plain by the outer wall of the citadel, while the fourth is bounded by the road, beyond which rises the huge inner wall. The space in which the principal tombs were found is shut in by a double circle of upright slabs of stone. Their contents, into the discussion of which I don't propose to enter here, have long ago been transferred to Athens, so we saw nothing but the fragments of pottery with which the ground was thickly strewn. A climb of about 150 feet brought us from this point to the top of the hill on which Mycenae was built. Its position is striking, whether from a military or picturesque point of view. It's on a spur running out from a steep range of barren hills lying about northwest and southeast, There's a break in the range just behind the city, and it's to the northernmost of the two ridges, thus formed, that the Mycenaean Spur belongs. Looking southwest from the citadel, the whole plain of Argos lies spread before you. Indeed, the view from this point was even finer than that which we had enjoyed in the morning from the theatre of Argos. The sun trying hard to force its way through the heavy masses of cloud which hung above the opposite range of Parthenium, shot gleams, alternated with belts of dark shadow, across the plain at our feet. On our right, a green slope led away to the pass through which lies the road of Nemea and Corinth. Beyond this, in the far background, Killeney lifted its snow-crowned head. On our left, a bare limestone ridge Glittering in the radiant air, led the eye to where the sea sparkled, a pale blue overhung with a soft haze. Beyond this again, the mountain masses which divide Argolis from Laconia swept round till they joined Parthenium, in unbroken line, save where the citadel of Argos stood boldly out into the plain. On the hill of Mycenae can still be traced three lines of wall, In the lower one, on the north side, is a remarkable postern gate made of three huge blocks of stone, two serving for posts while the third lies across them. The masonry is all on a large scale, partly polygonal and partly of square cut blocks. As we drove back across the plain to Argos, a rich evening glow came over the whole scene, gradually fading into dusk as we re-entered the town. We didn't stay longer than to pick up our baggage and say farewell to our kind host, for Nauplia was to be our resting place that night. End of section 5.